Well, hi everybody. We are now uh, live from uh, from Paris. I'm here with uh, Jean-Jacques Gioni, who is one of the leading forces behind uh, LVMH. And um, LVMH is a company where every Norwegian person owns roughly one thousand dollars. So it's quite incredible. But let's um, kind of kick off uh, in a bit of a simple way here. So for you, uh, Jean-Jacques, what what is luxury? It's quite a complicated question. Um, I thought about it ahead of the uh, of the meeting. It's it's a fairly complicated question because if you start defining luxury through only products, uh, stores, marketing, etc., you miss the point. Mm. The point is the customer behavior, uh, the customer's desire. What do people want, and why do they buy luxury goods? It's actually to please themselves, to make good, to raise their uh, self-esteem. I mean, that's exactly about personal uh, behavior and what people are trying to achieve in terms of status, in terms of the way they look, in terms of how they interact with others. And we are providing products, or not only products, actually experiences, I mean the global luxury uh, industry, that help people really achieve the goals of looking better, feeling better. That's actually the definition, in my view, of luxury. And one important point is not to put in the same basket luxury and high-end, for for, mm. for instance. I don't know, take Steinway pianos. There is nothing more. I mean, I play the piano. There is nothing better than Steinway pianos. It's not a luxury item. It's a fabulous instrument, but it's not a luxury item. Why not? Because it has no volume and because it is not something that you would show off with or at the very least uh, express yourself uh, with. It's really a dialogue between the product and yourself. Luxury is not simply a dialogue between the product and the client. It's also showing off. I mean, it doesn't have a very positive meaning showing off, but it's, it's, it's really expressing oneself through uh, logos, through products, through in, in, in different mm. ways, which are very important for the people that, that are buying it. This is why we have such a large market. Mm -hmm. I mean, the dialogue with a Steinway piano is not a very, it's a very intimate dialogue. It's not something that you can interact with other people with. So what is a good luxury brand for you then, when you look at a, comp a company? Well, per se, stricto sensu, a, a good luxury brand is two things. is a name that is well recognized, but with attributes. Mm. Let me give you an example and why we got so uh, interested in Tiffany. When you look at Tiffany, the name, everybody knows about it. So we, sh we should just uh, inject here. So Tiffany is a, a big American brand that you just bought. Indeed. Indeed. A jewelry brand that, yeah. we, uh, that we bought. The name is pretty well known, but it's not sufficient. What was interested in the brand is that not only you have a well-known name, but you have a lot of things going with it. Audrey Hepburn, Diamond, Romans. New York, 57th Street, the blue color. I mean, a lot of things are mm. spontaneously associated to the brand. Mm. We call these attributes, are, are associated to the brand by a, a large amount of customers. That makes the brand very, very, very attractive because it's already well, de well, well defined and the customers know a lot of things about it. So then you build strategies, but you know the foundations are there. You build marketing strategies, retail strategies, but the foundations, which is really the, the definition of the brand and the strengths of the brand is there uh, already. But how do, you, how, do you, how do you build such a brand from scratch? Can you, can you build a brand it's from scratch? It's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, it, it takes ages. Uh, I mean, it takes luck, time, and frankly, it's not, we have not developed so many luxury brands from scratch or each time we've done it 
well, they are they remain small to, uh, today. We are getting into another topic, which is the topic of barriers to entry, which mm. is very important in uh, in luxury. But a lot of barriers to entry into the luxury business are pretty high and very difficult to to uh, to overcome. This is why it is so difficult to create luxury brands from uh, from scratch. And most of the luxury brands date back ages ago. But I mean, you deliberately draw the lines back with your brands, right? So in the entrance of LVMH in Paris, you meet, uh, you know, the Baluti shoes of uh, Greta Garbo, the shoes of Andy Warhol, uh, the champagne of Winston Churchill, uh, etc., etc. You go on. I mean, you deliberately Indeed. establish I mean, these links, no? You est- what you do in luxury is basically create a dialogue between the past and the present, between uh, heritage and modernity. Mm. And that's very, very, uh, very important. You need roots. I mean, it's very important to have roots. And how important is the, the product itself? The product is very important, uh, is, 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 is extremely important and usually makes the difference. I mean, you can have strong brands, but in the short term, the product makes, uh, makes the difference. The good product... And good product is a lot of things, aesthetics, functionality, quality. I mean, makes makes the difference. And uh, usually the momentum of the brand, the short-term momentum, I'm not talking about the brand itself as being a, a very important brand uh, for decades, but the momentum of the brand is usually connected with the quality of the, of the products that are being marketed at a given point in time. Mm. How do you segment the client base? And how, do you, and how important is the middle class here? In luxury, the middle class is extremely important uh, because that's the, the driving force. Being being luxury is the, let's say, the upper middle class. Let's let's put it that way. We're talking about people having a little bit of money. We don't sell to rich people. We sell to people having a little bit of uh, money. We do sell to I, rich I people. I suspect you sell to rich people too. We do sell to, you're <laughs> absolutely right. We do sell, but in percentage of total, yeah. it's way less than the upper middle class, the affluent people. I mean, our yeah. customer base is affluent people, is not rich people. We do business a little bit with rich people, but the bulk of what we um, of what of what we do, we do it with affluent people. So it's extremely uh, extremely important for uh, for us. And we come back to the distinction between luxury and uh, and high end. We are not high end. We have high end products and we serve high end clients, mm. but we do also have fifteen hundred dollars handbags, which are aimed at. Upper middle class in and upper middle class has different meanings de- depending on the uh, on the on the markets. In some markets, people are uh, average revenue is pretty high. In other markets, uh, average revenue could be half half that or even le- uh, or even less. So mm. it's different definition, but it's very important for us to really aim at convincing this upper middle class, these affluent people, people having a little bit of discretionary money, that uh, we have products for them. And that's what makes the luxury business what it is. It is not a volume business, but it's a large uh, business. We are not looking at ourselves as selling large volumes, but nevertheless, we, we do have sizable businesses. Mm. So we have, to, we have to manage that. Before we go to the, to the company, just uh, finally, what is your favorite personal piece of luxury? Probably uh, the brand with exceptional products that you feel are really exceptional. Laura Piana, for instance, mm. is, is, a, is for me a fabulous brand. Because so L- Laura, Laura Piana makes uh, sweaters and cashmere and those indeed, kind of things. Indeed. And uh, uh, I remember that when we bought it, the owner of Laura Piana uh, t- said, you should buy uh, a Laura Piana product, uh, but I warn you, 
all the rest of your sweaters, jumpers, etc., will you will have the feeling that you wear uh, cardboard afterwards. It was very true, actually. So it's very addictive, and it's uh, there is also some part of addiction in uh, in in luxury, but a good addiction. <laughs> Moving on to the history of um, LVMH, it's it's been just an unbelievable journey, right? The value of the company is now equal to Denmark's GDP. So incomprehensible, really. Uh, it's made Banano the richest man in Europe and one of the richest people in the world. Just um, what sort of characteristics does it take for somebody to build a company like this? That's a very good question. Um, well, obviously, um, strategic sense. And uh, Bernard Arnault was able to spot 30 years ago, which is not yesterday, I mean, 30 years ago, uh, the fabulous potential of luxury. And he's been surfing on that ever, ever, ever since. Mm. But it also requires the ability, I mean, the surfing image is always, is, is always interesting because uh, in surf, you need um, a good wave. Mm. That's uh, the demand. But you need certain skills to stay on top Yeah. And what what are these skills? These skills are several. First of all, you need the brands. Uh, as we discussed already, you don't create good brands, you develop them, but you you need the the the, the starting point has to be good brands. But the main skill is to develop, to have the ability to develop th those uh, those brands. And it's all about Management. I mean, very good uh, management in all forms. It could be creation, it could be uh, management, it could be how people are behaving in stores and how do they convince clients that they should be buying something, etc. So it's a lot. It's a, it, it's a, it's a lot of things, but it's really about creating the conditions for a sophisticated management system to develop and to be able to manage so many brands at the same time. And when I mean manage, is more develop so many brands at the, at the, at the, at the same time. So I think uh, one of the, the, the key strengths uh, of, uh, that, that Bernard Arnault has shown over the, over the years is beyond his strategic instinct and the strategic uh, vision that he had about luxury that he started 30 years ago and he has been developing ever since in, in, uh, in many ways. He has always, also been able to develop a management system. He's not the only one. He, he has a few people around, uh, around him that have been able to share uh, this vision and to develop it alongside his, his own uh, view of it. Typically, I see that um, hard work is underestimated uh, when you look at these success stories worldwide. How, how hard does he work? He works pretty, pretty hard. Uh, I mean, his age is no secret. He's 73. I've been working, I had the privilege to work with him for the last 20 years almost. And frankly, he's as active today as he was 20 years ago and probably 30 years ago or even uh, further than, uh, than, uh, than that. He works very, very hard. And it is part of it because knowing what's going on, knowing the clients, knowing the strategies, knowing... I mean, when you have the... A group like LVMH is a group with many uh, brands, but many brands means uh, many 
situations, many experiences that you can uh, uh, draw learnings from, a, a, a lot of things. So the more you know about it, the more you know about luxury and the more you know about mm. how to develop the, 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 the business. And Bernard spends an awful lot of time working on that. He attends management presentation. He visits stores each and every Saturday morning. He's visit, visiting stores, talking to clients, talking to sales assistant. So being very close to the to the customers. And, and, what's, the, and, what's the dri- and, and what's the driver here? I mean, what makes him continue like this? You should ask him. You should <laughs> ask him. I, do, I, I, I don't know, but frankly, the only thing I can say uh, is that he's as active as he's ever been. Yeah, well, I, I love it. It's the way just that young. Moving on to uh, Ready to Drink, uh, I think few listeners will really comprehend the, f- the range you have and the, the kind of, in a way, it's nearly a monopoly you have in the champagne market in terms of the big brands. And so for your information, uh, they control things like uh, at the very high end, the Dom Perignon, the Krug, the Veuve Clicquot, Moët Chardon, Ruinard. I mean, wow, you have cornered it. How did you do it? Um, that's that's a little bit different from the strategies we we discussed before. How, how are we, have we done it? We invested into distribution. I mean, we made uh, we, we had very good brands. We were not the only one, but we had very good brands. But we uh, invested a lot into our distribution networks to make sure that our bottles would be found not necessarily in France, which is a very competitive market where prices of the essence. So basically, we went outside France, where p- competition on prices is less uh, is less tough, and we invested into our own distribution uh, companies. We don't do talk to the end customer, but we talk to the the, uh, the wine merchant, the restaurants, etc., to make sure that our bottles are in front of the best uh, the, the, the the best clients. And with that, it enabled us to raise progressively the price of our bottles. And as you said, I mean to sort of concentrate, if not monopolize, but at least to concentrate on the top end of the of the of the market. So it requires obviously strong products, strong brands, and we never compromise on quality and so we, we do invest. The marketing investment is complicated in Champagne because there are many locations where apart from uh, having a picture of the bottle, you're not allowed to do anything uh, any, a, anything else. I think it, it is very true in France. I think it is true in the same way in Norway. Mm. Uh, but that's why the distribution investment is so, is so important, being close to the, if not the end customer, but at least the one who talks to uh, the, uh, the, the, the end customer. And that requires money, and we've been able to do this, uh, this investment. Now, your background is in uh, M&A, uh, mergers and acquisitions, yes. so i.e. buying and selling companies. And you were head of uh, M&A at uh, Lazard, which was uh, probably the preeminent shop in, uh, in France, I guess, at the time. At the time it was, yeah. Uh, what characterizes a good acquisition? Well, the, the, the acquisition cycle in in luxury is something interesting to to uh, to, to analyze there are phases mm. when um, there is concentration and then nothing happens if you try to to look at it from a more financial viewpoint uh, it's pretty simple to analyze i mean the the finance people would 
when they trade stocks, we talk about bid and ask. I mean, the, the price at which people are ready to sell and the price at which people are ready to buy. Mm. First of all, there is a tendency from uh, sellers and buyers. The sellers would look at tomorrow's price and the buyers at yesterday's price. Mm. Uh, in good times, these two prices tend to be close uh, because for buyers, uh, they tend to go uh, to, to look forward and they feel the price will go up. Whereas for sellers, they know that the business was worse XYZ before. And if they can get a better price, that's a, a very good surprise. So the bid ask spread is small. Mm. It goes the other way around in, in tough times. So the first thing you observe is that consolidation t- tends to take place in good times, when the cycle is on the way um, in, on the way up. In other words, there is no such thing as bottom fishing. We have never seen a company uh, being able to uh, buy at a very low price mm. uh, and taking opportunity of tough times. It's very difficult to do because you don't know how low is low, and that's that's the difficulty. I mean, if I, if I tell you, you will turn left uh, uh, 200 meter before uh, the next crossroad, you don't understand what I mean because it, it means nothing. It's exactly the same thing with, with, with acquisition. When and the cycle is on the way is, is on the way down. You never know how far you are from the bottom of the cycle. And if you if you know that it is the bottom of the cycle, everybody would be rushing to buy assets. And uh, actually, it, the bottom of the cycle is at is, is at the point in time when everybody has sold already and is not ready to um, to uh, to buy. So these things, you have a cycle. Uh, so that's uh, that's a very important point to to uh, to to bear in mind. The second thing I would I would comment is that when it comes to luxury, it's a tricky exercise because you do it on the way. Most of the acquisitions are done on the way up, but at pretty expensive prices. So you'd better be right on your assumptions when it comes to paying high earnings multiples. On, uh, on on acquisition targets because otherwise I mean your shareholders will be disappointed because you're not delivering the the, the value you were supposed to 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 to, uh, to deliver. So do they have to be? Do the acquisitions have to be friendly? I mean you have you have some friendly ones. I guess the Bulgaria one, the Laura Piana, but they were friendly. Tiffany wasn't particularly friendly. It was. Not, not particularly friendly. I mean, Tiffany was a complicated acquisition because it was a typical U.S. acquisition, so it's not friendly, but the, the, the US, U.S. boards tend to consider uh, friendly and hostile as a direct function of price. Mm. But so, how, is it, how is it to now be married to somebody who didn't want to marry you? Well, they have, in, in the US, particularly in the U.S., uh, they tend to have a, f- a system whereby all the management goes away after the acquisition. I'm, I don't mean that we have uh, let them go. I mean that they go away because they have golden parachutes and they uh, they sort of trigger their, their golden golden parachutes 10 minutes after the acquisition. So we knew right from the beginning that we would have to feel all the serious management position with new people, right. be they American, European, where, wherever from. So in terms of management team, I mean, most of the management team at Tiffany is on newcomers. So mm-hmm. we, we don't have a legacy of hostility or being the barbarians at the gate uh, as sometimes uh, hostile takeovers are, mm-hmm. being, uh, are being analyzed. Because basically once we, do, we, we did the acquisition, most of the management team, if not all of them, and I'm talking about a large number of people, went away because they exercised their, their, their golden parachute. So that's a fact of life. I mean, that's the way it works in, um, in the US. Mm-hmm. What, what are the other things you would love to own? Well, you can dream about uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of companies, but the, the, one has to be realistic about uh, what is achievable and what is not. That's the first point. 
And, so, and the second point is also to look at uh, the, the portfolio that we uh, that we have and whether there are uh, areas in this portfolio where we don't really own exceptional assets. Mm. One example is high-end luxury watches, for, for instance. I mean, we have Hublot. Hublot is a great brand. So for your information, Hublot is the big bang Pretty loud, big watches, right? Exactly. So it's very. Uh, I mean, we we are very proud of this brand. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic brand, but it's not everybody's uh, watches. Let's put mm. it that um, uh, that way. We lack in the portfolio the classical high-end uh, watch, typically the Patek Philippe, the Audemars, Audemars Piguet, that type of um, mm. uh, watch. We, we we don't have uh, any. That's something that we would welcome as a, as a potential uh, acquisition uh, opportunity. We also feel that in the wine and spirit business, I mean, there are fabulous whiskey brands. For, for instance, we do own Glen Morangi, which is, which is a great uh, pure malt uh, brand, but there are fabulous uh, brands. And we would love to expand in this business, which is very similar to our champagne and cognac business. A lot of roots, a lot of aging of product, not so much emphasis on marketing. I mean, you sell always the same product, but importance of distribution, exactly what we have de developed over the years with, uh, with Mohet and uh, NSC. So there are plenty of categories. I mean, we are not so much developed in skincare uh, compared to our uh, competitors, Estee Lauder or L'Oréal. I mean, we would love to expand there. Maybe acquisition would enable us to fulfill those um, uh, those gaps. Mm. But it, they depend. I mean, you don't create opportunities. I mean, it, it depends on whether they come or, or, uh, or not. We are patient and we are extremely, uh, well, we are able to move very fast as we have shown mm. in the past. We have a lot of young people and students uh, who follow these podcasts. Now, uh, what are you doing to appeal to those guys, the younger people and the new generation? It's a good, a good point. The fact of the matter is that the bulk of our customers are young ones. Mm. So I would say that by definition, we'll, we'll try to discuss that a little bit later, but by definition, luxury is appealing to the young customers. Uh, not all the luxury products. I mean, if you start, uh, if you want to start your, your life and career and have uh, the ability to buy a 40,000 euro crocodile handbag from uh, Vuitton or Dior, maybe it's a little bit out of reach for, uh, for, uh, for a while. But it's also part of many people's accomplishment in professional life to have the ability to buy and to invest into luxury uh, luxury, luxury goods and the sooner they do they do it the, f the better they they uh, they feel about it is it also that they feel uh, a bit more insecure and need to have a brand to rely not, on not so sure i think it's about self accomplishment and also pleasing oneself mm. just having the opportunity i Take handbag. I mean, you take a plastic bag from a supermarket. It does a job of carrying whatever you have to to, to carry. Well, it, it does a job, but it's not the same feeling. No. So pleasing oneself is having a. Uh, I, mean, I mentioned before the Loropiana jumpers. I mean, the feeling of Loropiana jumpers, which is much more expensive than any other, uh, other jumper, is incomparable. Just pleasing myself. Just a feeling, I feel better into uh, in, into that. This has no age, and it starts uh, and 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 people start uh, start early, and we end up with the architecture of most of our brands. Don't don't, don't take me wrong. I mean, a brand like Loropiana, which is very expensive, has on average older customers than mm. a brand like uh, Vuitton, that has a lot of luxury. Uh, 
how can I say, enterprise product doesn't, mean, how, how doesn't do you, mean cheap, but enterprise. Elaborate a bit on that, the, how you look at price architecture. What, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, is the ubiquity of uh, luxury brands from a pricing viewpoint. All the, all, most of the brands, and particularly the, more, the bigger ones and the more global ones, are ranging from pretty low amount to very high amount. Take even Chanel or Dior. Chanel or Dior, when you go to their stores, they start at a pretty high price point. But think about it. Cosmetic business is Chanel and Dior, and it's really Chanel and Dior. Mm. So a lipstick, a Chanel lipstick or a Dior lipstick is probably worth 30 or 35 euros. So it's not a lot of money, but it's genuinely a Dior or Chanel uh, product. It's a luxury item. And the motivation of people in buying a Dior lipstick is actually because they feel that they will look better, they please themselves by buying a, a Dior lipstick. You don't have to invest thousands of uh, uh, euros or dollars into product to, be, to have a really luxury attitude and buy a luxury, uh, luxury product. So the, the strength, in my view, of the luxury brands is, is this ability to offer, to offer a very, very large price range of mm. product to different people, be different things to, 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 to different people with a sort of common thread, which is pleasing oneself, looking good, feeling good. I wanted to finish off with some uh, cultural uh, issues. How do you disagree with, uh, with the wealthiest man in Europe? He's very open to different views, even sometimes expressed in a fairly vivid manner. Let's put it that way. Uh, so he's very open to, to that. It doesn't mean that he listens or that he would do, uh, even when I disagree with him, that he would do what I suggest. But sometimes, sometimes he does. Most of the time he follows his own, uh, his own views. He's a boss. I have no problem with, uh, with that. But he listens. So the, mo the most important point is this ability to uh, be, be welcoming uh, different opinions. And it, it, it's frankly not complicated. Have you managed to get him to change his mind often? Not often, but from, from, from time to time, yes. Mm. Now, what we're seeing is that um, family businesses, uh, in my mind, can work really well in retail and in luxury and so on. And we are seeing an example in, in LVMH where uh, the next generation is kind of being groomed to take over. Uh, there is a saying that um, nepotism works well as long as it stays in the family. And I think this is perhaps one of the, <laughs> one of the examples of that. Can you just tell how this, how this works? Well, first of all, the, the, the first thing to bear in mind and is that Bernard Arnault is there 12 hours a day, more than five days a week, because he works also the, the, on, on, on weekends, and he's very, he is very active on managing the group, as he's always, always done. So that's, that's a very important to bear in mind. As you said, I mean, his grooming is his uh, uh, successors, let's put it that, uh, that way, and getting them to understand what is luxury, what are the luxury brands of the group, and what it is to manage a group of that size. Uh, and there are different ages, and they're working on, um, on that. The succession is not, in my view, a question for tomorrow, but probably for the day after, uh, after, after tomorrow, there will be time will pass before the question really uh, rises as, as, a, as a hot one and a, uh, a burning one. So discussing the conditions of the su succession today when the time is not ripe is, in my view, a little, bit, um, a little bit useless. But what I know is that Bernardo is extremely uh, keen on developing the business 
for the next generation and for the generation after. I mean, he doesn't feel that no, nothing exists after him. I mean, he's very uh, keen really to develop, uh, to develop the business and to pass the business to the best suited persons uh, in, um, in your course. So I'm, I'm not particularly worried about, uh, about, about that. I think it will be achieved in due course smoothly and to the best interest of his family and of uh, the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Lastly, what would be your advice to people and in particular young people who would like to get into the luxury goods industry? Well, they should send uh, a resume to uh, the HR division. I mean, we, we are always uh, in search of uh, talents. I mean, the talent war is probably uh, the the uh, the most important thing that we have to uh, to to manage on a day-to-day basis and starting from uh, the commercial side is probably is very advisable yeah. i mean it's not what i've done because i've been in finance all my all, all my all my career but getting in touch with the clients and knowing how they react how they feel what they like and you get to understand everything at the, at, the, at the same time. You understand the client. You understand whether the marketing strategies have any impact on uh, on uh, on them. You understand the strengths or the weakness of the of the of the product. So starting from sales is, in my view, extremely important. Doesn't mean that people have to stay there ten years, but they have to start from uh, from uh, being in front of the client. It's awfully important. Mm. Thank you so much. It's been. Uh Fantastically interesting and good luck going forward. Thank you. Take care.